Welcome to Speech, the words that shaped history. I'm Chris Acuff, and I want to share with you my intense interest in history and rhetoric. I'm doing this podcast because I'm just idealistic enough to think that individuals can step into the whitewater rapids of historical trends and forces to make a difference. The point of this podcast series is to look at important speeches from history, put them into the context of their time and place, look at who spoke the words, and why the speech matters. A speech may be inspiring in its time, but it also sets a tone for policy decisions and establishes culture. It can spin information for the public, and sometimes good rhetoric is worth listening to for the virtue of the words alone. Each episode, we will look at a speech together, and then I will explain the context of its time and place, and we will look at the speech again, hopefully this time in a new light. If I can find a recording of the speech, I will play it then at the end. The speech I've chosen for the first episode is one you're probably unlikely to have heard before. Part of this podcast is absolutely just going to be me getting to indulge in some of my historical interests that I don't necessarily have an easy time talking about in a regular conversation. And after watching the exceptional Oppenheimer movie from Christopher Nolan, I uh, you know picked up the book American Prometheus uh, that it was based on, and I found the whole story behind Oppenheimer, who he was, where he came from, and the questions that are posed, not just by the nuclear bomb, but by the state having control over that power and, and the apparatus of national security that's built up in the Cold War. This speech is Oppenheimer's farewell address uh, to Los Alamos, to all these people he's worked with for these last couple of years, to the people who have looked up to him for this project and now here, still in 1945, not very long after the dropping of the atomic bomb, and it's not a normal farewell speech. You can compare this to you know, some other examples or some of the presidential farewell addresses. Uh, instead, what it really reads as is a plan. Oppenheimer is telling these other scientists that he's been with what he's gonna do now that he's done with Los Alamos, how he's gonna get involved with politics, and not only with politics, but with some of the grand ideas that he and Niels Bohr have been floating around in their, their conversations with each other after the work at Los Alamos. And this may be an interesting choice for the first episode, because in the intro, where I talk about how this podcast is really going to look at the intersections between where human actors are able to interact with the you know, grand trends and forces of history, uh, this is a time when the individual lost. Whether that's a good or bad thing, you know, kind of remains to be seen. But Oppenheimer's ideas here are certainly fascinating, and and we'll get into more detail after the speech. But without further ado, here is J. Robert Oppenheimer on November 2nd, 1945. I think there are issues which are quite simple and quite deep, and which involve us as a group of scientists, involve us per- more perhaps than any other group in the world. I think that it can only help to look a little at what our situation is, at what has happened to us, and that this must give us some honesty, some insight, which will be a source of strength in what may be the not-too-easy days ahead. I would like to take this as deep and serious as I know how, and then perhaps come to more immediate questions in the course of discussion later. I want anyone who feels like it to ask me a question, and if I can't answer it, as will often be the case, I will just have to say so. What has happened to us, it is really rather major. It is so major that I think in some ways one returns to the greatest developments of the 20th century, to the discovery of relativity, to the whole development of atomic theory and its interpretation in terms of complementarity, for analogy. These things, as you know, forced us to reconsider the relations between science and common sense. They forced on us the recognition that the fact that we were in the habit of talking a certain language and using certain concepts did not necessarily imply that there was anything in the real world to correspond to these. They forced us to be prepared for the inadequacy of the ways in which human beings attempted to deal with reality for that reality. In some ways, I think these virtues, which scientists quite reluctantly were forced to learn by the nature of the world that they were studying, may be useful, even today, in preparing us for somewhat more radical views of what the issues are than would be natural or easy for people who had not been through this experience. I think that it hardly needs to be said why the impact is so strong. There are three reasons. One is the extraordinary speed in which these things, which were right on the frontier of science, were translated into terms where they affected many living people, and potentially all people. Another is the fact, quite accidental in many ways, and connected with the speed, 
that scientists themselves played such a large part not merely in providing the foundation for atomic weapons, but in actually making them. In this, we are certainly closer to it than any other group. The third is that the thing we made, partly because of the technical nature of the problem, partly because we worked hard, and partly because we had good breaks, really arrived in the world with such a shattering reality and suddenness that there was no opportunity for the edges to be worn off. In considering what, that's, what the situation of science is, it may be helpful to think a little of what people said and felt their motives were in coming to the, into this job. One always has to worry that what people say of their motives is not adequate. Many people said different things, and most of them, I think, had some validity. There was in the first place the great concern that our enemy might develop these weapons before we did, and the feeling, at least in the early days, the very strong feeling that without atomic weapons it might be very difficult, it might be impossible, it might be an incredibly long thing to win the war. These things wore off a little as it became clear that the war would be won in any case. Some people, I think, were motivated by curiosity, and rightly so, and some by a sense of adventure, and rightly so. Others had more political arguments and said, well, we know that atomic weapons are in principle possible and it is not right that the threat of their unrealized possibility should hang over the world. It is right that the world should know what can be done in their field and deal with it. And the people added to that, it was a time when all over the world men would be particularly ripe and open to dealing with this problem because of the immediacy of the evils of war, because of the universal cry from everyone that one could not go through this thing again, even or without atomic bombs. And there was, finally, and I think rightly, the feeling that there was probably no place in the world where the development of atomic weapons would have a better chance of leading to a reasonable solution and a smaller chance of leading to disaster than within the United States. I believe all these things that people said are true, and I think I said them all myself at one time or another. But when you come right down to it, the reason that we did this job is because it was an organic necessity. If you are a scientist, you cannot stop such a thing. If you are a scientist, you believe that it is good to find out how the world works, that it is good to find out what the realities are, that it is good to turn over to mankind at large the greatest possible power to control the world and deal with it according to its lights and its values. There has been a lot of talk about the evils of secrecy, of concealment, of control, of security. Some of that talk has been on a rather low plane, limited really to saying that it is difficult or inconvenient to work in a world where you are not free to do uh, what you want. I think that talk has been justified, and that the almost unanimous resistance of scientists to the imposition of control of secrecy is a justified position. But I think that the reason for it may lie a little deeper. I think that it comes from the fact that secrecy strikes at the very root of what science is and what it is for. It is not possible to be a scientist unless you believe that it is good to learn. It is not good to be a scientist, and it is not possible unless you think that it is of the highest value to share your knowledge, to share it with anyone who is interested. It is not possible to be a scientist unless you believe that the knowledge of the world and the power which this gives is a thing which is of intrinsic value to humanity and that you are using it to help in the spread of knowledge and willing to take the consequences. And, therefore, I think that this resistance which we feel and see around us to anything which is an attempt to treat science of the future as though it were rather a dangerous thing, a thing that must be watched and managed, is resisted not because of its inconvenience, I think we are in a position where we must be willing to take any inconvenience, but resisted because it is based off a philosophy incompatible with that by which we live and have learned to live in the past. There are many people who try to wiggle out of this. They say the real importance of atomic energy does not lie in the weapons that have been made. The real importance lies in the great benefits with, with which atomic energy, which the various radiations will bring to mankind. There may be some truth to this. I am sure that there is truth in it, because there has never in the past been a new field open where the real fruits of it have not been invisible at the beginning. I have very high confidence that the fruits, the so-called peacetime applications, of atomic energy will have in them all that we think, and more. There are others who try to escape the immediacy of the situation by saying that, after all, war has always been very terrible, and after all, weapons have always gotten worse and worse. That this is just another weapon, it doesn't create a great change, and that they are not so bad. 
bombings have been bad in this war, and this is not a change in that, it just adds a little to the effectiveness of bombing, that some sort of protection will be found. I think that these efforts to diffuse and weaken the nature of the crisis make it only more dangerous. I think it is for us to accept it is a very grave crisis to realize these atomic weapons which have started to make are very terrible, that they involve a change, that they are not just a slight modification. To accept this and to accept with it the necessity for these transformations in the world which will make it possible to integrate these developments into human life. As scientists, I think we have perhaps a little greater ability to accept change, accept radical change, because of our experiences in the pursuit of science. And that may help us, that and the fact that we have lived with it, to be of some use in understanding these problems. It is clear to me that wars have changed. It is clear to me that these first bombs, the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki, if these can destroy 10 square miles, then that is really quite something. It is clear to me that they are going to be very cheap if anyone wants to make them. It is clear to me that this is a situation where a quantitative change and a change in which the advantage of aggression compared to defense, of attack compared to defense, is shifted. Where this quantitative change has all the character of a change in quality, of a change in the nature of the world. I know that whereas wars have become intolerable, and the question would have been raised and would have been pursued after the war more ardently than after the last of whether there was not some method by which they could be averted. But I think the advent of the atomic bomb and the facts that will get around that they are not too hard to make, that they will be universal if people wish to make them universal, that they will not constitute a real drain on the economy of any strong nation, and that their power of destruction will grow and is already incomparably greater than that of any other weapon. I think these things create a new situation, so new that there is some danger, even some danger in believing that what we have is a new argument for arrangements, for hopes that existed before this development took place. By that I mean that as much as I like to hear the advocates for a world federation or advocates for a United Nations organization, who have been talking of these things for years, much as I like to hear them say that here is a new argument, I think that they are in part missing the point. Because the point is not that atomic weapons constitute a new argument. There have always been good arguments. The point is that atomic weapons constitute also a new field. A new field of opportunity for realizing preconditions. I think that when people talk of a fact that this is not only a great peril, but a great hope, this is what they should mean. I do not think that they should mean the unknown. Though sure, value of industrial and scientific virtues of atomic energy. Rather, the simple fact that in this field, because it is a threat, because it is a peril, and because it has certain special characteristics to which I will return, there exists a possibility of realizing, of beginning to realize, those changes which are needed if there is to be any peace. Those are very far-reaching changes, and they are changes in the relations between nations, not only in spirit, not only in law, but also in conception and feeling. I don't know which of these is prior. They must all work together, and only in the gradual interaction of one on the other can make a reality. I don't agree with those who say the first step is to have a structure of international law. I don't agree with those who say the only thing is to have friendly feelings. All of these things will be involved. I think it is true to say that atomic weapons are a peril which will affect everyone in the world, and in a sense, a completely common problem, as common a problem as it was for the Allies to defeat the Nazis. I think that in order to handle this common problem, there must be a complete sense of community responsibility. I do not think that one may expect that people will con contribute to the solution of the problem until they are aware of their ability to take part in the solution. I think that it is a field in which the implementation of such a common responsibility has certain decisive advantages. It is a new field in which the position of vested interests in various parts of the world is very much less serious than in others. It is serious in this country, and that is one of our problems. It is a new field in which the role of science has been so great that it is, to my mind, hardly thinkable that the international traditions of science and the fraternity of scientists should not play a constructive part. It is a new field in which just the novelty and special characteristics of the technical operations should, should enable 
one to establish community of interest, which might also almost be regarded as a pilot plant for a new type of international collaboration. I speak of it as a pilot plant because it is quite clear that the control of atomic weapons cannot be in itself the unique end of such operation. The only unique end can be a world that is united, a world in which war will not occur. But those things don't happen overnight. And in this field, it would seem that one could get started, and get started without meeting any of those insuperable obstacles which history has so often placed in the way of any effort of, for cooperation. Now, this is not an easy thing, and the point I want to make, the point which I will want to hammer home, is that an enormous change in spirit is involved. There are things which we hold very dear, and I think rightly hold very dear. I would say the word democracy perhaps stood for some of them, as well as any other word. There are many parts of the world in which there is no democracy. There are other things which we hold dear, which we rightly should, and when I speak of a new spirit in international affairs, I mean that even in these deepest of things which we cherish, and for which Americans will have been willing to die, and so certainly most of us would be willing to die, even in these deepest things, we realize that there is something more profound than that, namely the common bond with other men everywhere. It is only if you do, it is only if you do that this makes sense. If you approach the problem and say, we know it is right and we would like to use the atomic bomb to persuade you to agree with us, then you are in a very weak position and you will not succeed because under those conditions, you will not succeed in delegating responsibility for the survival of men. It is a purely unilateral sentiment. You will find yourselves attempting by force of arms to prevent a disaster. As far as I can tell in the world outside, there are many people just as quick to see the gravity of the situation and to understand it in terms not so different from those I have tried to outline. It is not only among scientists that there are wise people and foolish people. I have had occasion in the last few months to meet people who had to do with the government, the legislative branches, the administrative branches, and even the judicial branches, and I have found many of in whom an understanding of what this problem is and the general lines along which it can be solved is very clear. I would especially mention the former Secretary of War, Mr. Simpson, who perhaps, as much as any man, seemed to appreciate how hopeless and how impractical it was to attack this problem on a superficial level and whose devotion to the development of atomic weapons was in large measure governed by his understanding of the hope that lay in it that there would be a new world. I know this is a surprise because most people think that the War Department has its unique function, the making of war. The Secretary of War has other functions. I think this is another question of importance, that is, what views will be held on those matters in other countries? I think it is important to realize that even those who are well-informed in this country have been slow to understand, slow to believe, that the bombs would work, and then slow to understand that their working would represent such profound problems. As I have said, I had for a long time the feeling of most extreme urgency. I think maybe there was something right about that. There was a period immediately after the first use of the bomb which it seemed most natural that a clear statement of policy, the initial steps of implementing it, should have been made. And it would be wrong for me not to admit that something may have been lost, and there may be a tragedy in that loss. But I think the plain fact is that in the actual world, and with the actual people in it, it has taken time and may take longer to understand what this is all about. I think that we have no hope at all if we yield in our belief in the value of science in the good that it can bring to the world, to know about reality, about nature, to, and to gain gradually greater and greater control of nature, to learn, to teach, to understand. I think that if we lose our faith in this, we stop being scientists. We sell out our heritage. We lose what we have most of value for this time of crisis. But there is another thing. We are not only scientists, we are men too. We cannot forget our dependence on our fellow men. I mean not only our material dependence, without which no science would be possible, and without which we could not work. I mean also our moral dependence, and that the value of science must lie in the world of men, that our roots lie there. These are the strongest bonds in the world, stronger than those even that bind us to one another. These are the deepest bonds that bind us to our fellow men. End of speech.
Now here, as we go to look into the speech itself, let's break it down a little bit. First, we need to think of who is Oppenheimer's main audience? Well, it's his, you know, going away speech. These are all the scientists that he worked with at Los Alamos. Many of them he recruited himself. Uh, these are his friends. These are people who very much look up to him. Like we talked about before, this speech is not, you know, congratulatory or celebratory. Instead, it's kind of him explaining a plan. If you look at the opening of the speech, he talks about, you know, building the bomb, that it's a big deal, that this is going to change the face of the world, and that they, as scientists, need to come together and have a plan for what comes next. There, From there on, he goes and talks about how, you know, everybody had their motives for the job. Some of you guys just wanted to come beat the Nazis. Some of you wanted to explore and see what science can do. But in the end, he says that they all did it because they kind of had to, because it was going to be done, you know, one way or the other. He goes on to talk about how they're resisting the secrecy structure because resisting secrecy is what science does, and that's kind of a subtle theme throughout the, the speech and what kind of he wants to get into, um, because next he starts talking about how big of a deal the bomb is. He understands that it changes the very nature of war. And it's a big deal that he's come to that realization here not long after the first dropping of the bombs. And, you know, he kind of says, hey, there's probably other people who've come to this realization as well that this makes the attacker stronger than the defender. And throughout, you know, pretty much all of human history up until this point, that's been the opposite. Uh, the defender has always had the advantage. If you read anything about, you know, war strategy, they'll typically talk about if you attack, you need to have, you know, three to one numbers against uh, whoever the the defender is. Um, but with a nuclear bomb, all it takes is one to devastate an entire area. He also goes on to say that these things are really not that hard to make. And I think what he means by that, you, you might hear that and go, well, this Manhattan Project was a huge deal. You had to go build a city out in the middle of the desert. You know, all these different people had to be involved. What do you mean it's not that hard to make? And I think what he means by that is, you know, once the scientific concepts were, are understood and once the first couple have been built, which is what they did, uh, it wouldn't be that hard to make more once people knew how. And I think that's what he means because um, now that America has invented them, others can figure out how to make them much easier and it would be cheaper for other places to get them, like we see the Soviet Union getting uh, nuclear weapons not that much later. Uh, using espionage um, from Los Alamos for the plans and understanding of, of how to build them. And so he goes on to say that, therefore, we need an international structure against their use again, and against, uh, you know, in a larger sense, against war. Um, this is very much going into the idea of the UN, which is starting to be proposed around this time, um, which came out of kind of FDR and the New Deal idealism, but Oppenheimer here talks about, hey, like, this is going to be a challenge. This is not something that's going to come easily, and it's going to take more than just, uh, you know, kumbaya around the campfire type stuff. Then he ends the speech with trying to rally all these scientists around the idea of science, around this idea of a higher calling, using this universalist language in an almost religious sense to try to gear them up again for kind of these confrontations, political confrontations that are about to happen. Now that we've looked at the speech, it's important that we look at who Oppenheimer was and where he came from. Oppenheimer was born in 1904 to a pretty wealthy family. His line in the movie about his father being a self-made man is pretty true. His father was a German Jew who came over to America with very little and then got involved in the New York textile business and uh, did pretty well for himself. But when Oppenheimer was born, he was seen as pretty brilliant from the beginning, according to uh, the records and what I've seen in that book, the, uh, the American Prometheus book. He went to the Ethical Culture School, which was a private school that sprung out of a non-religious Jewish movement there during the Progressive Era. There's some interesting stories about that in the Prometheus book, but for now, it's important to note that it undoubtedly helped shape his young views on the world. He was able to skip a few grades in school and got really into geology and mineralogy. One of my favorite stories about him during this, his, uh, his childhood is how he begins to exchange letters with some geologists and eventually is invited to speak at one of their events. Of course, everyone is surprised when an actual child shows up with his father and uh, he still, you know, despite being a little shy, goes up and gives the talk that he had planned. After he graduates high school, Oppenheimer gets sick and almost dies. 
Uh, he goes to the southwest to recover, where he learns to ride horses and kind of falls in love with the rugged beauty of New Mexico. After he recovers, he goes on to Harvard to do a special program to study advanced physics. And still, he manages to graduate in three years. After he graduates Harvard, he goes on to Europe, because although post-World War I America was a manufacturing juggernaut, many of the best uh, scientists and universities were still in Europe. America wouldn't have the incredible technological research capacity that it has now until after the war. Because of this, uh, he goes to England to study the new ideas in physics, and he kind of hates it, at least in England, which we see in the Nolan movie. Uh, and eventually he goes on to, he moves on to Germany to study under Max Born, and he works with some other names you, remember, you may remember from your own physics class. People like Werner Heisenberg of the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle, Enrico Fermi, who was a giant among physicists, but I know him best from the Fermi Paradox, which I guess goes to show how good of a physicist I am. Uh, Edward Teller was also there, who we see a lot of in the Nolan movie, uh, but it was really important in history for uh, going after Oppenheimer, being part of the, some of these problems that come up later on in his life, and then also leading the development of the hydrogen bomb. He gets his doctorate in 1927, uh, if you're paying attention to when he was born, he's somewhere around 23, 24. Uh, and has published a very famous paper with Bourne before moving back to the USA. Uh, he eventually settles down at University of Berkeley to help push America forward in physics. Before we get too much farther, though, it's important to point out two other aspects of Oppenheimer that play a big part in who he is. First, he was a bit of a Renaissance man. Besides his eventual mastery in physics, he also read a lot and widely. He's probably most famous for quoting the Bhavad Gita line, Now I've become death, destroyer of worlds, and talking about the Trinity test. And the reason he can quote that is because, well, he read it. Secondly, it's clear that he had some serious psychological trouble, especially in younger life. It's clear he didn't get along well with other kids and was what we would now call an incel for a little while. There's one story that I think took place in England. Uh, where he was on a train, saw a couple kissing, and then the guy gets up for whatever reason, and Oppenheimer goes and tries to kiss the woman, and she throws him off, and apparently he collapses on the other seat, you know, crying. Uh, there's also a story they show in the movie where he attempts to kill his tutor with a poisoned apple, although I've seen in some places that this didn't happen, but regardless, his tutor Patrick uh, Blackett didn't die and would eventually go on to earn the Nobel Prize. So it's clear that Oppenheimer has some psychological troubles, and he, he goes to, to I, th I think it's recorded that he goes to therapy there for a while, but um, despite his troubles, he seems to have more or less come into his own by the time he starts teaching at Berkeley, because by all accounts, he was an incredible teacher, so much so that his students began following him in an almost cult-like fashion, fashion, going so far as to mimic his walk and the way he spoke. Oppenheimer worked with Ernst Lawrence, who would go on to earn a Nobel Prize, who ran the radiation lab and invented cyclotrons, which is an early type of particle accelerator. The next part of his life is a part that gets him in so much trouble later on. Surprisingly, you know, this is not his affairs and relationships, but his associations with communism. As a quick aside, if you want to dig even deeper into this man's history, then I highly recommend the book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin. I've kind of mentioned it a couple times by now, I should have a link to this podcast bookshop page in the liner notes, which will have this book on it, uh, along with any other books that I recommend from later or other podcasts. Bookshop.org is an online bookstore that works with independent bookstores, and by getting this book through my page, you will not only support the show, you know, to a small extent, but you will also, you know, avoid sending money to Amazon. Now, back to communism. Oppenheimer never joined the Communist Party, that much we know but he was involved in many closely tied organizations. He says that he has no interest in politics until 1934, which is incidentally the year that Hitler declared himself Fuhrer in Germany. Oppenheimer gave money to help get German scientists, particularly Jewish scientists, out of Germany. He also donated to help anti-fascists fight in the civil war in Spain, a war which they would eventually lose to the Nazi and Italian-backed Franco regime. Back then, associating communism was certainly not seen with the hate it would be seen in the Cold War, but it was not as relaxed as it is now, where we can even have self-declared socialists in Congress. Although, the FBI did still have a file on him. In the 30s and 40s, socialist and communist ideas were popular among the unionists and, idealist, and idealistic college intellectuals, but it was also tied to the Soviet Union 
who is seen as a potential geopolitical rival and was led by Joseph Stalin, who certainly didn't help further the global appeal of communism with his megalomaniacal tendencies. In fact, it was the actions of the Soviet Union that would eventually cause some of Oppenheimer's friends and associates to leave the American Communist Party. Oppenheimer would get involved with various other groups and go to parties with far-left-leaning people, which would get, into, get him into some trouble later on, but also certainly influence his beliefs espoused in the speech. Oppenheimer uses universalist language, which I've mentioned a couple times, but it's in an internationalist sense that was fairly rare at the time in America. You have to remember America for much of its history has been pretty isolationist. Um, he influenced one of the earlier nuclear control papers that was published. It's a paper called the atchison lilienthal Report, and it recommends creating an international body to govern all things nuclear, from mines to production to power plants. The idea should sound a little familiar, since it's basically what Oppenheimer is talking about here in his speech. Throughout the speech, you see a man who is acutely aware that he is in the center of history, aware of the attention and aware of the legacy of the violence of what he has just created. He is trying to gear up these scientists from Los Alamos to advocate for the future Atchison-Lilienthal report. He is trying to encourage political action, which is not something physicists typically do. None of them got to be the plan's policy advocate, though. Instead, a man named Bernard Baruch is the one to bring the proposal to the United Nations. Bernard made his millions on Wall Street, but got out before the crash of the, uh, of the Great Depression. He was involved in Woodrow Wilson's administration, even taking part in the Paris Peace Conference after the First World War and the development of the League of Nations. Next, he fell in with FDR in support of the New Deal and got a spot in the Office of War Mobilization. The policies from him and that office are credited with helping reduce the time it took to ramp up a manufa American manufacturing for the war. All the guns, tanks, and planes that ensured the Allies would eventually win the war from material alone. All this to say, this is a man who knew his way around the levers of power, and in 1946, the version of the Atchison-Lilienthal plan he presented was different from what had been proposed by the scientists. The Baruch plan called for the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission to have a monopoly on uranium and thorium mining, along with control of nuclear power and technology, but the call for the elimination of the atomic weapons and implementation of international safeguards is most concerning to us here. The only problem on the international scale with the Beirut plan is that the U.S. would hold on to its nuclear arms until the rest of the world complied with this program. And it's difficult to know just how serious the Beirut plan was, how much the Truman administration really wanted it to succeed. Because there is no way the Soviets, especially of, under the well-known paranoid of Stalin, could ever agree to such terms. They counteroffered that the Americans should get rid of their own nuclear weapons before su such a process take place, which was obviously not agreed to because the plan failed and the nuclear arms race that dominated the early Cold War took off. Oppenheimer was clearly against the arms race. He and many of the other scientists in the advisory committee tried to stop the development of the hydrogen bombs, bombs that are hundreds of times the scale of the mere nuclear bomb and truly dwarf the mind's capacity to understand. But Washington was caught up in this mad power scramble that came with a new national security state and the idea of deterrence, that no one would be able to start a war because it would be too bad to endure, and that America needed the ability to make that threat. I want to make an aside about that argument that a nuclear war would be so costly as to not be worth the fight. It's the main idea behind the MAD doctrine later on, mutually assured destruction. And it's argued to be the reason why the Cold War never actually turned hot. A variation of the same argument was used before both of the previous world wars. Before the First World War, there was an argument that the war would disrupt the absolute whale of a time that Europe was having with its colonialism and commerce. And the idea was brought up before the Second World War, because this time everyone knew what they were getting into, which was why appeasement was tried for so long. So we have to ask if an international group made creating nuclear weapons somewhere between very difficult and impossible for the major powers to make during the Cold War, would the powers have continued to play their games until something happened and a conventional war started, and then one or both sides would develop nukes outside of the UN regulatory body? What happens if there is no nuclear th threat when China gets involved during the Korean War and you have American and Chinese soldiers and pilots facing each other. 
If you had asked any of these hawks in the national security apparatus at the time, I'm sure this is what they would say the risk was. But that's a huge what if. And of course, the other side of that what if is what if the increased cooperation between the great powers begun by this nuclear framework blossomed into an incredible era of international cooperation after Stalin's death? It's impossible to know. Either way, we can really only work out what actually happened. This is not the end of Oppenheimer's story. If you watch the movie or read this book that I was talking about, we know Oppenheimer was heavily involved in all these backroom smoky meetings where a bunch of men sat around a table and tried to decide the fate of the world. This podcast, though, is about how individuals interact with the grand trends and forces of history. And now we need to come to a point where Oppenheimer runs afoul of not only those forces, but a few key individuals. Rabid anti-communism was the name of the game at the time, and Joe McCarthy is certainly the poster boy. McCarthy was a senator from Wisconsin, and in 1950, he's at some Republican women's club in West Virginia, of all places, and stands up with a piece of paper that says something to the effect of, I have a list here of 205 communists currently working in the State Department. This blows up, and he makes a whole media circus out of it. From, but from what I gather, the State Department kind of already knew about everyone on the list, and it was never really that big of a deal. But McCarthy uses this to start a big partisan fight and use it to swing the winds of popularity more to the side of the Republicans at the time, uh, built entirely on the base of this fear of communism. That being said, he famously didn't get along with Eisenhower, a guy known for being good at getting along with people, and the guy who became the next president after Truman in 1952 the first Republican president after 20 years of Democratic control of the office. There's a lot more I want to say about this guy, and maybe one day I will, but we'll leave him here for now. Tied up with all of that is another Titanic figure of this era, J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover was the director of the Bureau of Investigation before the creation of the FBI, or the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and he directed that from its inception in 1935 and stayed in power for 37 years until his death. There is little doubt that few other men have had such a singular impact on the American federal government as Hoover. But, in my opinion, Hoover is the type of guy that the structure of a democracy is built to keep out of having power over the public. He's the type of person who should struggle to get elected into any office, and public pressure should get him out of an appointed one. I know that current partisan politics in America makes the cynic-minded think anyone can get elected, and that isn't totally wrong, but we should also remember that current events are not normal, and that the system is showing that it can course correct as well. What I mean by all this with Hoover is, well, I'm, you can just look at the guy's story. One of the first jobs he got after law school was at the Alien Enemy Bureau during World War I. The Bureau's job was to jail foreigners without trial if the Bureau deemed them disloyal. This was under the Espionage Act of 1917, a law which is still in the books in a modified form, and there are a few, th in, in my opinion, there are a few things more antithetical to the promise of America than the ideas behind this law. He was appointed to lead the BOI, or Bureau of Investigation, by President Coolidge, and he proceeded to force all the women and people he thought looked stupid out of their job. The BOI was reorganized into the FBI to deal with the bank robbers that were running wild in the 30s. That, along with his obsession with what he considered to be communist agitators. Meanwhile, he completely ignored the mob during the Prohibition era. He flat out denied the existence of the mob until the 50s when they got so powerful he was forced to go after them. He'd much rather go after people he considered to be communist or radicals. The, the fundamental flaw of being more fearful of peaceful people working within the law who disagreed politically with him than those actually causing harm to the citizens he was sworn to protect. This goes along with one of the other things he is infamous for, gathering files on politicians and blackmailing them to go his way. How this relates to Oppenheimer's story, though, is that FDR gave Hoover permission to conduct illegal wiretappings in 1941, but said that the Attorney General had to be informed of each one. Well, the Attorney General Robert Jackson thought the whole thing was detestable and didn't want to get his hands dirty, so he kind of let Hoover do whatever he wanted. Hoover had illegal wiretaps done on Oppenheimer and had him watched before the war, despite there being no credible evidence of his Communist Party membership. But as discussed before, he swam in those circles and what was and, and was what is known as a fellow traveler. During and after the war, though, he was under pretty much constant surveillance. 
Hoover and McCarthy are who I would argue are the most responsible actors for building up the trends and force of the just rabid anti-communism that worked on breaking down civil li liberties there in the early Cold War. That fervor of the time is what stood in the way of the structure Oppenheimer was advocating for in the speech and in the Atchison-Lilienthal plan, and ultimately took Oppenheimer down out of power when Strauss sets his ha uh, sights on Oppenheimer, who we see in the movie and in the book. The timing of it is kind of sad too, because Oppenheimer's security board hearing, as shown in the movie and the book, ended in May 1954, and Joe McCarthy's power broke in June of that same year. At the time, in the Senate, he was investigating the army for communists, but started attacking one of the defense's lawyers. Now, something to remember is that all of these hearings, about all these hearings, is that they were a huge national spe spectacle. There were only really like three channels on the TV at the time, and I think all three of them showed the hearings. Everyone in the country knew about these. McCarthy is attacking one of the lawyers, a man named Fred Fisher. He was interrupted by the Army's lead lawyer, Joseph Welch, who said, Until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty or your recklessness. Let us not assassinate this lad any further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of de decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of de decency? Between, between those words and uh, the fact that McCarthy had been censured by the Senate the year before, kind of broke the bully aura that he had built up, and he lost a lot of this power that he had just used to reign over the Senate. It's hard to tell if this would have changed the, the sway with how Oppenheimer's he hearing would have turned out, because something to remember is that the board Strauss appointed was expected to be a kangaroo court, and yet one of them still ended up siding with Oppenheimer. Ultimately, I agree with Nolan's portrayal of Oppenheimer along the archetypical lines of the tragic hero, and tragic hero being the, uh, the, the story archetype of this person who um, tries to do a certain thing, but is ultimately either fails or is brought down after their success by their own personal flaws or failings. Uh, and I think the speech here and the events that happened kind of show this. He is an extremely intellectually gifted man with his own very human flaws. He uses his genius to do what he thinks is a patriotic effort to help his country in the Manhattan Project. And then, with a clear-eyed understanding of the danger of nuclear weapons, he tries to oppose the tribal, militaristic force of the new national security complex to create a world where the greatest practical creation of his work would cease to exist. But he lost. For those who haven't seen the movie or read the book, another Washington insider named Strauss, who also happened to be on the board of the Princeton Institute Oppenheimer worked at after the war, but importantly, Strauss was a member of the Eisenhower administration. Strauss wanted Oppenheimer to lose his ability to influence politics for a number of reasons. Some were personal disagreements, and some were because Strauss wanted the U.S. to build the, the H-bomb, uh, to build the national defense apparatus, and he, wanted, and he worked with the FBI to build up a report then used to have Oppenheimer's security clearance questioned. Strauss chose the three members of the board to evaluate Oppenheimer, and he chose a very confrontational lawyer to lead the prosecution, and made sure the board and the lawyer had access to the FBI documents, and Oppenheimer and his lawyer would not have access. After losing his security clearance, Oppenheimer still had his soft power influence, but no longer could work on policy. Of course, Strauss's move to oust Oppenheimer backfired, as shown in the Nolan movie. Strauss had to get congressional approval for a position in 1959 and was rejected, one of only a few appointment rejections in this country's history. Um, Oppenheimer died from throat cancer in 1967 at 62 years old. His cancer was likely due to smoking over the course of his whole life. While the plan laid down in his speech may not have come to pass, the ideas of international cooperation on nuclear matters have taken root, but now in a sense of control rather than prevention. I think it's worth speculating what a practical application of the physicist's ideas were, are, and uh, what a world built on international cooperation to keep the very weapon that could end civilization out of existence. As I read the speech again, I hope this episode leaves you thinking about these ideas and that you imagine yourself standing there in the New Mexico desert facing these ideas in a new world as humanity faces the Promethean consequences of unleashing the atom.
I think there are issues which are quite simple and quite deep and which involve us as a group of scientists, involve us per more perhaps than any other group in the world. I think that it can only help to look a little at what our situation is, at what has happened to us, and that this must give us some honesty, some insight, which will be a source of strength in what may be the not too easy days ahead. I would like to take this as deep and serious as I know how, and then perhaps come to more immediate questions in the course of discussion later. I want anyone who feels like it to ask me a question, and if I can't answer it, as will often be the case, I will just have to say so. What has happened to us, it is really rather major. It is so major that I think in some ways one returns to the greatest developments of the 20th century, to the discovery of relativity, to the whole development of atomic theory, and its interpretation in terms of complementarity, for analogy. These things, as you know, forced us to reconsider the relations between science and common sense. They forced on us the recognition that the fact that we were in the habit of talking a certain language and using certain concepts did not necessarily imply that there was anything in the real world to correspond to these. They forced us to be prepared for the inadequacy of the ways in which human beings attempted to deal with reality for that reality. In some ways, I think these virtues, which scientists quite reluctantly were forced to learn by the nature of the world that they were studying, may be useful, even today, in preparing us for somewhat more radical views of what the issues are than would be natural or easy for people who had not been through this experience. I think that it hardly needs to be said why the impact is so strong. There are three reasons. One is the extraordinary speed in which these things, which were right on the frontier of science, were translated into terms where they affected many living people, and potentially all people. Another is the fact, quite accidental in many ways, and connected with the speed, that scientists themselves played such a large part not merely in providing the foundation for atomic weapons, but in actually making them. In this, we are certainly closer to it than any other group. The third is that the thing we made, partly because of the technical nature of the problem, partly because we worked hard, and partly because we had good breaks, really arrived in the world with such a shattering reality and suddenness that there was no opportunity for the edges to be worn off. In considering what, that's, what the situation of science is, it may be helpful to think a little of what people said and felt their motives were in coming to the, into this job. One always has to worry that what people say of their motives is not adequate. Many people said different things, and most of them, I think, had some validity. There was in the first place the great concern that our enemy might develop these weapons before we did, and the feeling, at least in the early days, the very strong feeling that without atomic weapons it might be very difficult, it might be impossible, it might be an incredibly long thing to win the war. These things wore off a little as it became clear that the war would be won in any case. Some people, I think, were motivated by curiosity, and rightly so, and some by a sense of adventure, and rightly so. Others had more political arguments and said, well, we know that atomic weapons are in principle possible, and it is not right that the threat of their unrealized possibility should hang over the world. It is right that the world should know what can be done in their field and deal with it. And the people added to that, it was a time when all over the world men would be particularly ripe and open to dealing with this problem because of the immediacy of the evils of war, because of the universal cry from everyone that one could not go through this thing again, even or without atomic bombs. And there was, finally, and I think rightly, the feeling that there was probably no place in the world where the development of atomic weapons would have a better chance of leading to a reasonable solution and a smaller chance of leading to disaster than within the United States. I believe all these things that people said are true, and I think I said them all myself at one time or another. But when you come right down to it, the reason that we did this job is because it was an organic necessity. If you are a scientist, you cannot stop such a thing. If you are a scientist, you believe that it is good to find out how the world works, that it is good to find out what the realities are, that it is good to turn over to mankind at large the greatest possible power to control the world and deal with it according to its lights and its values. There has been a lot of talk about the evils of secrecy, of concealment, of control, of security. Some of that talk has been on a rather low plane, limited really to saying that it is difficult or inconvenient to work in a world where you are not free to do uh, what you want. I think that talk has been justified, and that the almost unanimous resistance of scientists to the imposition of control of secrecy is a justified position. 
but I think that the reason for it may lie a little deeper. I think that it comes from the fact that secrecy strikes at the very root of what science is and what it is for. It is not possible to be a scientist unless you believe that it is good to learn. It is not good to be a scientist, and it is not possible unless you think that it is of the highest value to share your knowledge, to share it with anyone who is interested. It is not possible to be a scientist unless you believe that the knowledge of the world and the power which this gives is a thing which is of intrinsic value to humanity and that you are using it to help in the spread of knowledge and willing to take the consequences. And, therefore, I think that this resistance which we feel and see around us to anything which is an attempt to treat science of the future as though it were rather a dangerous thing, a thing that must be watched and managed, is resisted not because of its inconvenience, I think we are in a position where we must be willing to take any inconvenience, but resisted because it is based off a philosophy incompatible with that by which we live and have learned to live in the past. There are many people who try to wiggle out of this. They say the real importance of atomic energy does not lie in the weapons that have been made. The real importance lies in the great benefits with, with which atomic energy, which the various radiations will bring to mankind. There may be some truth to this. I am sure that there is truth in it, because there has never in the past been a new field open where the real fruits of it have not been invisible at the beginning. I have very high confidence that the fruits, the so-called peacetime applications, of atomic energy will have in them all that we think, and more. There are others who try to escape the immediacy of the situation by saying that, after all, war has always been very terrible, and, after all, weapons have always gotten worse and worse. That this is just another weapon, it doesn't create a great change, and that they are not so bad. Bombings have been bad in this war, and this is not a change in that, it just adds a little to the effectiveness of bombing, that some sort of protection will be found. I think that these efforts to diffuse and weaken the nature of the crisis make it only more dangerous. I think it is for us to accept it is a very grave crisis to realize these atomic weapons which have started to make are very terrible, that they involve a change, that they are not just a slight modification. To accept this and to accept with it the necessity for these transformations in the world which will make it possible to integrate these developments into human life. As scientists, I think we have perhaps a little greater ability to accept change, accept radical change, because of our experiences in the pursuit of science. And that may help us, that and the fact that we have lived with it, to be of some use in understanding these problems. It is clear to me that wars have changed. It is clear to me that these first bombs, the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki, if these can destroy 10 square miles, then that is really quite something. It is clear to me that they are going to be very cheap if anyone wants to make them. It is clear to me that this is a situation where a quantitative change and a change in which the advantage of aggression compared to defense, of attack compared to defense, is shifted. Where this quantitative change has all the character of a change in quality, of a change in the nature of the world. I know that whereas wars have become intolerable, and the question would have been raised and would have been pursued after the war more ardently than after the last, of whether there was not some method by which they could be averted. But I think the advent of the atomic bomb and the facts that will get around that they are not too hard to make, that they will be universal if people wish to make them universal, that they will not constitute a real drain on the economy of any strong nation, and that their power of destruction will grow and is already incomparably greater than that of any other weapon. I think these things create a new situation, so new that there is some danger, even some danger in believing that what we have is a new argument for arrangements, for hopes that existed before this development took place. By that I mean that as much as I like to hear the advocates for a world federation or advocates for a United Nations organization, who have been talking of these things for years, much as I like to hear them say that here is a new argument, I think that they are in part missing the point. Because the point is not that atomic weapons constitute a new argument. There have always been good arguments. The point is that atomic weapons constitute also a new field. A new field of opportunity for realizing preconditions. I think that when people talk of a fact that this is not only a great peril, but a great hope, this is what they should mean. I do not think that they should mean the unknown. Though sure, value of industrial and scientific virtues of atomic energy. 
Rather, the simple fact that in this field, because it is a threat, because it is a peril, and because it has certain special characteristics to which I will return, there exists a possibility of realizing, of beginning to realize, those changes which are needed if there is to be any peace. Those are very far-reaching changes, and they are changes in the relations between nations, not only in spirit, not only in law, but also in conception and feeling. I don't know which of these is prior. They must all work together, and only in the gradual interaction of one on the other can make a reality. I don't agree with those who say the first step is to have a structure of international law. I don't agree with those who say the only thing is to have friendly feelings. All of these things will be involved. I think it is true to say that atomic weapons are a peril which will affect everyone in the world, and in a sense, a completely common problem, as common a problem as it was for the Allies to defeat the Nazis. I think that in order to handle this common problem, there must be a complete sense of community responsibility. I do not think that one may expect that people will con contribute to the solution of the problem until they are aware of their ability to take part in the solution. I think that it is a field in which the implementation of such a common responsibility has certain decisive advantages. It is a new field in which the position of vested interests in various parts of the world is very much less serious than in others. It is serious in this country, and that is one of our problems. It is a new field in which the role of science has been so great that it is, to my mind, hardly thinkable that the international traditions of science and the fraternity of scientists should not play a constructive part. It is a new field in which just the novelty and special characteristics of the technical operations should enable one to establish community of interest, which might also almost be regarded as a pilot plant for a new type of international collaboration. I speak of it as a pilot plant because it is quite clear that the control of atomic weapons cannot be in itself the unique end of such operation. The only unique end can be a world that is united, a world in which war will not occur. But those things don't happen overnight. And in this field, it would seem that one could get started, and get started without meeting any of those insuperable obstacles which history has so often placed in the way of any effort of, for cooperation. Now, this is not an easy thing, and the point I want to make, the point which I will want to hammer home, is that an enormous change in spirit is involved. There are things which we hold very dear, and I think rightly hold very dear, I would say the word democracy perhaps stood for some of them as well as any other word. There are many parts of the world in which there is no democracy. There are other things which we hold dear, which we rightly should, and when I speak of a new spirit in international affairs, I mean that even in these deepest of things which we cherish, and for which Americans will have been willing to die, and so certainly most of us would be willing to die, even in these deepest things we realize that there is something more profound than that namely, the common bond with other men everywhere. It is only if you do it is only if you do that this makes sense. If you approach the problem and say, we know it is right and we would like to use the atomic bomb to persuade you to agree with us, then you are in a very weak position and you will not succeed because under those conditions, you will not succeed in delegating responsibility for the survival of men. It is a purely unilateral sentiment you will find yourselves attempting by force of arms to prevent a disaster. As far as I can tell in the world outside, there are many people just as quick to see the gravity of the situation and to understand it in terms not so different from those I have tried to outline. It is not only among scientists that there are wise people and foolish people. I have had occasion in the last few months to meet people who had to do with the government, the legislative branches, the administrative branches, and even the judicial branches, and I have found many of in whom an understanding of what this problem is and the general lines along which it can be solved is very clear. I would especially mention the former Secretary of War, Mr. Simpson, who perhaps, as much as any man, seemed to appreciate how hopeless and how impractical it was to attack this problem on a superficial level and whose devotion to the development of atomic weapons was in large measure governed by his understanding of the hope that lay in it that there would be a new world. I know this is a surprise because most people think that the War Department has its unique function, the making of war. The Secretary of War has other functions. I think this is another question of importance, that is, what views will be held on those matters in other countries? 
I think it is important to realize that even those who are well-informed in this country have been slow to understand, slow to believe, that the bombs would work, and then slow to understand that their working would represent such profound problems. As I have said, I had for a long time the feeling of most extreme urgency. I think maybe there was something right about that. There was a period immediately after the first use of the bomb which it seemed most natural that a clear statement of policy, the initial steps of implementing it, should have been made. And it would be wrong for me not to admit that something may have been lost, and there may be a tragedy in that loss. But I think the plain fact is that in the actual world, and with the actual people in it, it has taken time and may take longer to understand what this is all about. I think that we have no hope at all if we yield in our belief in the value of science in the good that it can bring to the world to know about reality, about nature, to, and to gain gradually greater and greater control of nature, to learn, to teach, to understand. I think that if we lose our faith in this, we stop being scientists. We sell out our heritage. We lose what we have most of value for this time of crisis. But there is another thing. We are not only scientists, we are men too. We cannot forget our dependence on our fellow men. I mean not only our material dependence, without which no science would be possible, and without which we could not work. I mean also our moral dependence, and that the value of science must lie in the world of men, that our roots lie there. These are the strongest bonds in the world, stronger than those even that bind us to one another. These are the deepest bonds that bind us to our fellow men.